We're on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in your notes there on the essentials of our fundamental doctrines, and this one is very familiar to all of you here. So we're not going to cover any brand new material unless you have questions that you've never heard any preacher answer, or maybe you've never heard this preacher answer it, and you might say, maybe he's got some weird ideas, because Somehow, somewhere along the line, people have thought that I have weird ideas. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, I do. I do have weird ideas. All right. Um, and, and by the way, this week we were at the uh, we were up at the Bahamas, and I realized these men in this program really aren't churched, and so they really didn't know any of the music that we knew. They knew one or two songs because those are the only ones they sing there, from what I could tell. Because I went to the graduation, that's the only song they sang too, and so. Um, they really only know what they've been exposed to in the program. And so my family was trying to introduce them to some other songs, and they just sat there and just, wow. Um, and I don't think they'd really heard men sing like that, Scott and I, and then Joyce and Valerie. And so as a fan, they said, oh, you guys should go professional. <laughs> it's like, no, that's just singing. So um, the idea of being, of enjoying the singing of, uh, hymns and stuff is being largely lost in a lot of our churches, and so I appreciate that. So we sang a bit about Jesus Christ, Savior, Pilot Me, uh, and now we're going to look at some material that was probably pretty familiar to you, but we're going to go through it in a very sy systematic way. Uh, we're going to do this chronologically in the order in which we are introduced to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revealer of God. And so from the very beginning, whenever you have an interchange between God and man, that is the person of Jesus Christ, whether as the revealer of God pre-incarnate, before he became flesh, and after the incarnation, even after the resurrection. Now, does that mean that the Father and the Spirit are not engaged with us? Well, certainly they are. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He takes up residence within us. Um, and certainly works his spirit with ours and leads us into truth, illuminates us, comforts us, uh, convicts us, all those things. But in terms of revealing God, in terms, remember that the tool and mechanism of the Holy Spirit is what? What is the tool of the Holy Spirit? That's his work. What is his tool? What does he use to do his work? The Bible, all right? That's his sword. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so he works through God's Word. And it was involved, of course, in the, uh, when we talk about being God-breathed, inspired scriptures, certainly the Holy Spirit was engaged there. But when we talk about, I have seen God, I have spoken with him, I've heard his voice, I've seen him, uh, we're really generally referencing the second person of the Godhead. Because remember, we have these verses in the Bible that says no one has seen God at any time. And that's the front end of a, of a passage that says what? Yeah, Jesus Christ says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But the back end of the passage says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Son, he has revealed him. So the revealer of the Father is the Son. And so when we go into the Old Testament and apply that principle that no one has seen God, well, we have Lots of people, not lots, we have a, a good handful of people that had an engagement with God. Uh, we know that Adam and Eve, uh, God walked with them in the garden, the cool of the evening, that was a daily occurrence. 
Uh, we know that he met with other individuals. Uh, we have the first person that really says they saw God was Hagar. Uh, we have the manifestation of God all the way through it to various individuals, um, including sitting down and having a meal with Abram, uh, showing up in a fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so we have these engagements of the pre-incarnate Christ. We're going to talk about those first. Then we're going to go into his coming of who he is as the Son of God. And then we're going to look into what we familiarly know as the gospel, uh, the record of Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then lastly is his uh, coming again. So let's look at these. We have nine points we're going to cover tonight. Well, we're going to try. We might only get through five, but we have nine points in our study lesson here. I hope you've taken some time. I have left one. I've given you one example uh, in number one. I've filled out number one completely. And in all the rest of them, I've left one part blank for you to fill in. Did you notice that in your study? Uh, that you have a part to fill in here. It's called the application. And I hope you're prepared to give some applications of this. So here we go. Jesus, number one, that we're going to look at is that Jesus is everything God is. Uh, there is one passage that need to be corrected. It should be the last verse there. It should be Colossians 1.15. I think I have 1.12 there listed. Is that right? 1.13. It should be one Colossians 1.15, not 1.13 or 12, whatever is on there. And so, sorry for that, I, I missed that. And I think there's one other passage I have to correct on here too, on the second page. Uh, let's go to John. Uh, because we just got done with our study of John, this should be very familiar to you in John chapter 10. Of course, this is where we have the engagement with his enemies, where he, uh, they take up rocks to stone him. John 10, verse 30, following uh, Jesus Christ talking about um, who he is in reference to the Father. Starts off right away, I and my Father are one. They took up stones to stone him, which means they understood exactly what he says. They said, well, for what works are you, have I shown you for my Father? Which works these do you stone me? He says, none, but because you being a man, make yourself God. Verse 33, that is very clearly understood by everyone what his claim was. And even his response to them is not trying to minimize that but trying to help them to grasp the relationship between God and man. It is an intimate one. And so I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he tells that in the context of his discourse um, uh, later on with just the 11, uh, after Judas leaves. And, he's, and they ask him, just show us the Father. He says, have I been with you so long that you, <laughs> that you don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so everything we studied under God the Father, in a previous study, applies to Jesus Christ. All of those attributes of God, all of those names of God, can be applied to Jesus Christ as well. In fact, even the term Father can be applied to Jesus Christ. What? Sure. In fact, prophecy does that in Isaiah. What is the passage we always quote at Christmas time? And only at Christmas time, it seems like. What does Isaiah chapter 9 have to say? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be? Wonderful Counselor. 
Mighty God, Everlasting Father is one of his names, of the Son. The Son's name is Everlasting Father. So the Prince is also the Father. And so the triunity is very clearly demonstrated there. And, it, and so all of the titles applied to God, the Father, that we studied in, in, in theology proper, uh, all those attributes, all those names, apply to Jesus Christ. And so um, we just bring them in and we recognize Jesus Christ is everything God is because he is God. All right? Any questions on that point? Pretty well established. I'm giving you some time to think about any questions on that that might have bothered you over the years and years and years or months or days or hours. Maybe in the last couple of minutes. All right, so all that we study about God applies to Jesus Christ. Um, that's going to be important when we get later on in our study. So I want to make that foundation that we're all good with that, that Jesus Christ is God. A uh, phenomenal statement. So all we learned about God is absolutely true of Jesus Christ. What is our application? We should worship Jesus just as we worship God. Our understanding of Jesus is limited, and what is known must be accepted by faith. We, we don't understand the extent of Jesus, and there are some aspects of who he is that is beyond really our full understanding, but is not beyond our faith. You can believe things you don't understand. Is that true? Okay. I guarantee you, you all believe things you don't understand. Do you all believe in the internet? Do any of you really understand it? How it works? Where is it? Chris would be here and answering all my questions. So, where is it? Where's the cloud? What is the cloud? Oh. You see, even the terminology, we are like, it's in the clouds. No, it's not. Yeah, it's just, um, and so you're using computers that you don't understand, but you believe in them. You use them, okay? And, and you're, you don't really understand 5G, 4G, 3G, but you use them. And you don't understand these, how radio signals really work necessarily, but we are surrounded by them. And we don't understand the, what frequencies can do. And this was one of Tesla's big experiments was that vibrations are huge in, in affecting the material world. And um, you do know that there's something, what, what's going on in your brain? What happens, what, what works in your brain? How's your brain work? Do you know? All right, electricity and... Waves, brain waves. That's what they measure when they put those things on you. Your, the firing, when you put the th thing on to see if your mind is still working, they're measuring not only electrical impulses, but also waves. And so, you know, is light a wave or is it a particle? See, there's lots of things you don't understand, but you believe in. And when it comes to Jesus Christ, we are going to go beyond our understanding on some things, and that's okay. Uh, as long as we're ready to accept it by faith and not say, if I can't understand it, I'm not going to believe it. Well, you've just limited yourself in a whole lot of categories of your life. Now, I, am a, I love research and I love increasing my knowledge base. 
I, I don't like walking into conversations about topics ignorantly. I hate ignorance. Ignorance can be fixed. All right? I am ignorant in some areas. Some areas I just choose to be ignorant because I don't want to know those things. I want to be ignorant when it comes to evil. Okay? I want to be ignorant about those things. I don't want to know how wicked people can be. Um, but uh, I prefer to be able to engage people with a foundation of knowledge. And so I'm always on a learning track trying to increase my knowledge base in a lot of different areas. And then envelop them with... So ignorance can be fixed, all right? So if someone calls you ignorant, says, well, I'm working on that. <laughs> okay? Um, stupidity can't. All right, so if I call someone stupid, there's no hope for them because you can't fix stupid. But you can fix ignorance. Ignorance can be corrected by simply information. Stupidity means I'm not able to learn. And so uh, I want to increase my knowledge about Jesus Christ. And because he is God and infinite, um, that is a lifelong pursuit that I can engage in very satisfyingly because there's so much more to learn. So I'm, I'm kind of disappointed you don't have some questions because I have a lot of questions about how Jesus is God. All right, let's go on to the number point. No, point number two, Jesus is the Son of God. This is the relational aspect of the triunity. Uh, we have the unity part, and now we have the tri part. Uh, God, Jesus Christ being described as the second person of the triune God. And um, let's go... With many of these passages are familiar to you here. We've already referenced Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Uh, John 3, 16, you know. Uh, let's go to Matthew 16, 16. Someone read that for us, please. Very important declaration by Simon Peter and affirmed by Jesus Christ in the next verse. Look at verse 17. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And uh, this is the rock passage that I referenced last, last uh, Lord's Day morning and in that message about Peter. And so this is the, the declaration of Peter. You are the Son of God. That's who you are. Let's go to Psalm chapter 2. And we saw, saw, looked at Isaiah. Let's look at Psalm 2. I'm picking out a New Testament, Old Testament passage out of the list here so that we recognize that these truths are not just New Testament things, but the, that the, the Jewish people should have been anticipating this because they knew the, the, the law and the prophets and the, and the Psalms. Psalms chapter 2, uh, let's read, what, which one, verse 7, right? Yeah. Um, this is quoted again for us in passages in the New Testament, but let's look at it in the Old. It says, I will declare the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And we recognize that towards the end of Christ's ministry. But at the front end we say, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And so to which of the angels did he, says, did he ever say that? Asked the author of the book of Hebrews. So even from the Old Testament, we know that there is one who is coming who is the Son of God, and we have his names declared in Isaiah. We have the expectation of him being the prophet like unto Moses that you should listen to. We have him being the seed of a woman. Uh, we're going to reference all that a little bit later on. Uh, all the way back into Genesis with the fall of man. 
So from the beginning, we understand that there is a personal relationship. There's a relational uh, entity called the Son that we should anticipate coming to earth and dwelling amongst us. Doesn't make him less God, but he is the Son of God. Now, let's be careful in what we're defining here. That does not make him less than God. See number one. First point, Jesus is God. Everything God has applied to him. But he is the Son of God. And so when the Mormons talk about Jesus as the Son of God, what are they talking about? They use the same exact terminology. What do they mean? He came into being. There was a point that he came into being and started, and he was the Son of God, literally. He, and the Brigham Young statement as as God, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. And so um, that was his statement. And so we're all on a, on a God track. If you're a good Mormon, Temple Mormon, you can become a God of your own universe. It's kind of fantasy, but that's what it is. And so Jesus is simply had a beginning, and he was a son of God in the sense that you're, you're a son of God, and we're going to become gods of our own right, and then we can birth our spiritual children, and one of them can become a god and have their own universe, and so we have all these universes, and that really fits well into quantum physics, um, <laughs> if that matters to you. Uh, Mormons great, make great physics, uh, quantum physics people, uh, because it fits their theology. And so Jesus Christ wasn't always God, but he was always the Son of God, and in the Jehovah's Witness, he is an emanation of God. In other words, he had a beginning. He was the firstborn of creation, not over creation in Colossians. And so if you look at the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witness Bible, uh, they'll take Colossians 1 and manipulate it so that Jesus Christ was the first of creation as he is a created being by God. That is not what we mean by Jesus, the Son of God. This is an eternal relationship. Because he possesses every attribute God possesses. He is the Father and was in that relationship eternally. So just because we think of, a, we think of father-son relationship across time, we think that one is prior and one is later, that there is that temporal distinction but that is not what is being communicated when we say Jesus is the Son of God, that somehow there's the Father and then the Son and then later the Spirit. No, they were all coexisted eternally. So don't confuse a relational term with a temporal term. That's what's got caught up in these cults of Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism. have both gotten caught into that. And I've heard some mainstream evangelicals that have toyed with that and gotten themselves into trouble. Okay? And so Jesus' position as God's Son uniquely entitles him as the God revealer um, that he is that second person and so he is the one who is the representation of God to man. He is the one we see. And as I already referenced, he is the one that walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He is the one who Hagar saw in the wilderness. Uh, he is the one who sat down with a meal with Abram and listen to Sarai laugh. Okay? Uh, he was the one who was walking about in the fiery furnace. Any questions on his role as the Son of God? Now, give me an application. What does that mean? If he's the Son of God, what does that mean to you? 
What's that mean for us? All right, we can learn about God by studying Jesus Christ. We can add to our study of the Father by considering Jesus Christ. That's very important because we have much more information about Jesus than we have about the Father, believe it or not. Okay? In all the study we're going to see down here, we have that intimate relationship. So there's a level of intimacy. Now, we, because of the Son has intimacy with the Father, and the Son has intimacy with us. He walks with us. He can be seen. He, he puts on flesh. He uh, experiences temptation, hunger, thirst, all that stuff. Uh, he is that one, but yet he's also intimate with the Father. This is a precious go-between. This is our mediator. Is because he is intimate with the Father. He's one with the Father, but he's intimate with us. He'll walk with us in gardens. He'll stand with us in fiery furnaces. He'll make, become flesh and dwell among us. And so studying Jesus becomes an added benefit to understanding the Father and how God functions. What else? What else does it mean to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What is that? How does that apply to us? Okay, it's going to be very important later on when we get to his sacrificial death that because if he was just a, a glorified man, like the Mormons teach, if he had a beginning and he, he became God at some point, then he, even if he lived a perfect life, he could die for one person, but he couldn't die for all people. But now, because he's God, he can die for all of us. He can meet God's requirement for everybody, not just for one body. He can meet the requirements of God for everybody. He can have that level of perfection. That's going to be very important. All right, let's move on to number three, and let's see anybody else, something else they want to share here in their application. All right, number three. Jesus pre-incarnate, that is before he became flesh, carnal means flesh, pre-incarnate, was the revealer of God in the Old Testament. We've already referenced this a lot. Um, and, and again, we have a lot of Old Testament passages. We have the references in John 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and all things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Uh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have all of this information about the, the nature of Jesus Christ all the way back to creation, that He was there. Pre-incarnate. Uh, let's look at um, Exodus 24. Exodus 24. And this is usually one of the times people say, oh, this isn't Jesus. But let's look at it. Exodus 24. Exodus 24, 11. We could also jump up and do Deuteronomy 9. But let's look at Exodus 24. I want you to, we're going to answer a question, who saw God? Let's look at it, beginning verse 9. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Let's stop right there. It's all the farther you need to read. Who did they see? Right, because no one has seen God at any time. The Bible declares that repeatedly. So this isn't just Moses, Right? This is Moses, Aaron, Aaron's two sons, who, what's going to happen to Nadab and Abihu? 
God's going to kill them. So if you think being able to visually see God is what's going to transform your life so that you never get in trouble with God, uh, think differently. Here's two young men who saw God on the mountain of God. And later on, they're going to die by the hand of God because they violated and, and burned false, wrong incense, right? Wasn't that the deal? Stains fire before the Lord. Uh, notice who else was there. Not only Moses, Aaron, Nahab, and Abihu, but also the 70 of the elders of Israel. And so the 70 elders of Israel uh, saw God. And I think we forget the manifestation of God, how many are involved. We think, well, only Moses saw God. And what Moses saw that's different than what these guys saw was one aspect of God that God hid from all these men. What was it that Moses was exposed to that they were not? The glory of God. All right? And that's what made his hair go white and his face shine. They had to put a veil on him because Moses had access to the glory of God. These men all saw God. And that is Jesus Christ who can present himself um, whether with or without glory, can do that because glory doesn't define him. He possesses the glory. Remember that? We were studying the attributes of God. That they don't define him. They are his possessions, which means he can control them to whatever extent. So he can show you a little bit of his glory. He can show you a lot of his glory. Or he can hold back all of his glory. He just looks like a man to you. I'm pretty sure that's what he looked like when Abram served him a meal. And they had the conversation about Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? He wasn't shiny then. He just showed up and had that, was able to eat and engage and sit down and have a conversation uh, with them. And so we get the idea that only, there was only these individuals, but here um, we find that these men saw God. And it describes him. There's under his feet it were paved work of sapphire stone. It was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hands, so they saw God and they ate and drank. That means that God didn't kill them. And then look what this. So they saw God and they ate and drank. What does that refer to? I'm not going to kill you. I know you just saw me. I'm not going to kill you. Let's have a meal. This is fellowship. I'm going to have fellowship with you. And so the pre-incarnate Christ is the revealer of God in the Old Testament. And again, uh, it is very evident in God's word that when you are exposed to his glory, it is life-threatening. And somehow, and that's why it says, none of you dare tread on the mountain when the glory of God is on the mountain, which happens later in this chapter. Later in this chapter, uh, the glory of the Lord rests on that mountain. And so somehow the glory was held back so that God could have a meal with these 74 men. And then later on, here comes the glory. Verse 16. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. They could not 
go near the mountain when the glory of the Lord was on it, just like they couldn't hardly stand Moses walking around when the glory of the Lord was reflecting off of his face. And so um, this is the revelation of God to man at various levels of glory. But at the level we see here, they're sitting down and having a meal together. 74 men and God ate and drank together instead of being slain. Did not lay his hand on them. All right, so any questions? So Jesus has been, is, and will be the one who we will look upon to see God. In eternity, when we want to see God, we'll see Jesus Christ. That's who we will look to. He, will, he is the consistent representation of God to men's physical senses. To our physical senses, to our eyes, ears, touch, Jesus Christ is the one that when we say, have I seen God, that you're seeing, even into eternity. Yes. <laughs> you are seeing the whole God, because if you see Jesus, you are seeing the Father. And so it's not because God the Father is hiding. It is because there is more there than we can take in. There's more than there, not only that we can understand, and this is the concept of a finite dealing with an infinite. That I'm limited. I, I, my vision, my mind, my spirit are all limited. I am a finite creature, and God's infinitudes are beyond me. And when confronted with them, they would destroy me. Okay? Uh, they would just blow your mind uh, and spirit and body. And that's why... All through Scripture, anyone who sees even some of the glory of God are always afraid of it because they understand the destructive nature of it. When Isaiah goes to heaven and he confronted with the cherubs, uh, you know, holy, 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 Lord God, he says, woe is me, I'm undone. Confronted with that representation of a pureness, a pure place in the holiness of God, he's like, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. And God purifies his lips and says, it's okay, I'm going to let you be here. Um, but it's certain that <laughs> we cannot enter into pure holiness. We just can't go there. It's beyond us. We can't go into pure all of God. We, just, we have limited capacity to do that. And it would be, even in our glorified state in eternity, uh, after the resurrection, our glorified bodies, we're still finite. We're not little gods. And so we cannot fully see him. And so the, the Son is the one that reveals the Father to us. Okay, it's really not about God hiding. It's about him understanding our limitations. No, it's the one God. It is, this is the, uh, if it helps you to think of Jesus as the face I, I can see your face, but I can't really comprehend what you're thinking. And you can communicate to me with your breaths to help me understand your thinking. And breath, by the way, is the word spirit. Throat. In, in Hebrew, the word for spirit is throat. And in Greek, it's breath. And so I can communicate to you what I'm thinking. You can see my face, but, and maybe my facial expressions will help you know whether I'm angry or sad, but you really don't know my thinking my thoughts. And so 
we all understand that there's more to us than meets the eye. Well, there's more to God than you can ever meet. <laughs> Period. Okay, so if that helps you, I hate to, I don't want to break God down too much, but, but that's their roles that they play for us. They are invested in. Good question. Any others? Uh, certainly we understand the, that there are limitations and that there are some things. So while I enjoy a campfire, I don't sit in it because I get burned. But, I, but and, right, we enjoy the sun. I'm very glad for the sun. I enjoy the warmth of the sun. But I, I don't try to go hug the sun uh, because I'll be destroyed by it, by its heat, by its radiation, whatever. Yes? Good. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Which verse were you on? 28. In the context of 20 through 28. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. In fact, you're going to see it when we get down to that on the next page. Uh, when we get to um, the resurrection, you'll see the first passage I have there is 1 Corinthians 15, under number 7, uh, the scriptures. And it should be the whole chapter. I think it's only listing one verse, but it should be the whole chapter. All of chapter 15 is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're really talking about his placement in his place of authority. That Remember that Jesus Christ was, was lowered himself and then God exalted him. And at the end, when his full reign is extended beyond heaven onto the earth, and that's the focus here, because the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so we're at the very end when there is no more death, uh, other than the eternal state of those in the lake of fire. Uh, Satan has been destroyed. All of that has been accomplished. And then he says, for he who has put all things under his feet, when he says all things put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. That is that the Father was never humbled to the state of the Son when he became man. And so God never left that state of being, having all authority. The Son did, and we're going to talk about that maybe tonight. Probably, no, we're not, because we've got to deal with the Incarnation in a little bit. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so the Father is surrendering all authority to the Son, while the Son is surrendering the authority to the Father. This is mutual submission. Okay? And so the description here is, the Father says, you're on the throne. The Son on the throne says, I'm here for the Father. So when we get to heaven, who's on the throne? Jesus Christ is. But what's he doing on the throne? Has he supplanted God like the Mormons teach? No, he's not supplanting God. He is still on the throne in submission to God. So while all things are under his feet, all things, he has authority over all things, um, that is what is being accepted here is that we are not saying that somehow in their relationship the father was lower or the son was lower and then the father gave him that and now the father takes a back seat. That's not what's going on. They are mutually submissive to each other, and that's true of the entire deity, the, the Godhead. Uh, and so uh, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are mutually submissive, submissive to one another. But in appearance to us, in appearance to us, God the Father will put all things under Christ's feet, 
and while all things are subject to the Son, the Son subjects himself also to the Father. And that was true while he was on earth. He says, I must do my Father's will. Uh, I must be obedient to my Father. I must fulfill what I was sent here to do. So there's a submission there. Um, but it also says that if the Son had asked, what would the Father give him? I could ask for legions of angels, and the Father would give it to me. He said, give me whatever I want, because, uh, and if I asked. And so there is this, again, the Father's Son is not temporal, and that's what he's trying to say here. Uh, don't think of the Father-Son relationship temporally like we do, that only one can be above all, because one is the other. And so the way Paul communicates here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the Father is going to put everything under the Son, but that doesn't mean that now the Father is under the Son, because they are co-equal eternally, eternally past and eternally future. But from your view, who's going to be on the throne? Jesus Christ, as you said. So to our view, Jesus is going to be overall, but that's the view throughout all of Scripture. You go up on the mountain, you eat with God. That's Jesus Christ. He's the revealer of God. Because we are, do not have the capacity to see and to engage with the holiness in its infinitude, with the knowledge, with the power of the Father in its fullest expression. It would just destroy us. Go ahead. Correct. And that's the big, that's what's going to get us into number four. And we're going to do that next week, because there's no way I'm going to do that in minus one minute. Because um, <laughs> I'm not God. He could do that in minus one minute, but not me. We're going to talk about the incarnation. How does a holy, holy God walk among singer, sinners and become sin? That's a bigger question than how the incarnation is the, is the death on the cross. When he became sin for us, he knew no sin. And so those are really, that's a really good question to end with so we can kick off there uh, next Lord's Day and we'll get into that. But again, when we go back to all the attributes of God, this was the struggle conversation we had in that study. All of them are his possessions. And we do not have God in any kind of armbar hold that, oh, you have to do this because you're holy, holy, holy. no. Holiness isn't what God is. Holiness is what God possesses. God is a personal, eternal personal being, the, the, the primary personal being, the first. He, he is eternal. That is, he had no beginning, no end. And he's a personal being. And he possesses these attributes. And so he can express them or not express them. He can, to whatever degree he wants in any environment, he has he has perfect control over all of his attributes. And so people say, well, he has to always be holy, holy, holy by our definition. And you're right. In the presence of infinite holiness, no sin can be there. Yet we find Satan in rebellion coming before God in heaven, accusing Job. What's the deal with that? How does rebellious Satan have access to heaven? 
And which person of the deity is he talking to? How can a holy, holy God let... And Satan's not there uh, by invitation. He's, in, he's there by command because he has to give an accounting of himself. And if you notice, it's God that engages the relationship. Hey, what do you think of my servant Job? Okay? And so when we, when we begin to understand the attributes of God as a possession of God, a lot of these things will fall into place. But if we think that's the definition of God, and we take all those passages, God is holy, God is love, God is, and we say that defines who God, what God is, then we, we're going to get into all kinds of problems. And, and that's where a lot of theological error comes from. In the study, not only of Jesus Christ, but of the Holy Spirit, and of the Father, and of de- the nature of deity. And frankly, I butted heads with people historically in every church I've been in over this because they just won't get to that point of distinguishing attributes from identity. No, God is holy, holy, holy. Well, yes, he possesses holiness. It doesn't define him. He is holy in the sense that he has all holiness at his disposal and there is no, no error in him. There is no sin in him. Um, but, that doesn't, but if that were the case, as soon as Adam sinned, he would have been annihilated. As soon as Satan sinned, he would have been annihilated. If holiness was perfectly employed 100% of the time everywhere, which doesn't have to be, if it's defining what God is, if it's, an, it's, if it's a possession that God has, now he can exercise it to whatever degree he wants, if it's his possession. Okay, so my strength is my possession, it is not my definition. So I use my strength very differently if I'm hoisting concrete versus whether I'm hoisting um, Juliana. Okay, I'm a lot more careful with hoisting Juliana than concrete. I possess my strength. So that's going to be true about the attributes of God. That's going to come into play a lot next week as we get looking at the incarnation and we'll be looking at that and the process of what we think of as the activities of the four Gospels. Any other questions or comments? Praise the Lord. Good stuff. You have the holy place and the holy of holies and the sacrificial courtyard. Yep. And so you can get closer and closer, but ultimately none of us can get completely into the holy place because we would just dissolve. We're not capable. We're, not, we're finite. <laughs> and even now we struggle with the extent of God's holiness. We do know. Even that's frightening. You know, like Isaiah, woe is me. The more you discover the holiness of God, the more scary it gets. Oh, I'm not up to that. Not even close. Even in my glorified state, I think we'll still be Correct. And that's why we're going to come into the argument of could Jesus truly be tempted? That has to be discussed, right? And could the incarnation happen at all? Is it even possible? And we're going to talk about that. And of course, Ephesians 2 is going to come into place. And we're going to talk about kenosis and all that. Great. Be ready next week. Look through your verses, all those verses. Obviously, I'm not going through all the verses tonight. They're there for your edification, for you to look up and read. If you have any questions on any of the verses I've listed, if, yes. FF. When you see FF after a verse, it means and following. Okay? 
So that's a notation we use in commentaries and theological circles. So it's, it's this verse and the following verses. So it's basically, read the context. Read FF. Um, so verse 30 and following is what FF means. Okay? Good. Even practical things like that, we need to know. If you don't ask questions, you're going to have a hard time learning. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this time and your word and just considering who you are and what you've done for us. It's a marvel that uh, all that you have done for us and revealed of yourself and, and we thank you for the preciousness, the consistency that we see in God's word. And Lord, we know that we have so much more to learn and we look forward to doing it for eternity and still having a, a desire to learn more. And so we thank you for every opportunity you afford us to gather your name and to consider your word. Help us to do it well uh, by your spirit and not by the wisdom of man. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.